That's why it's confusing, because you can't really put your finger on it. It doesn't exist in one place. But it's made up of distinct parts, but they're always moving around. So they can basically clone themselves. And so all of a sudden you have like thousands of these B cells, and then those B cells can make tons of antibodies. Gut issues play a huge role in both development of allergic disease, but also development of autoimmune disease. Your response to this vaccine really hedges a lot on giving your immune system time to actually do the work. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I so enjoyed today's episode. I had been dying to do a deep, deep dive into the immune system and Heather Mode really delivered. We talk about so many things in this episode, like the role of gut health in our immune health, the role of sex in our immune system, thymus gland, labs to get, what happens when you get stuck in certain patterns of the immune system, TH1 and TH2 dominance, sleep, boots sensitivities, allergies. I really think this episode will be so beneficial for so many people, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash immune system. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pin post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, honestly, the best way to support it, I'm not kidding, is to subscribe and or write a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so, so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Heather Mode. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So the backstory on this conversation, if listeners listen to my episode that I did with Bill Tanser, the founder of Cygnos, which is a CGM company, I actually interviewed him for his book's not so much related to CGMs, but he is absolutely amazing. And he has a podcast and he's been connecting me to some guests that he's had on his show. So a while ago, he had interviewed Dr. Heather Moday for her book, The Immunotype Breakthrough, and said that I basically just had to interview her. And I was so, so excited because I had been dying to do an episode deep on the immune system. And so when I saw the title of the book, I was I was like, I really hope that this is what I'm hoping it is as far as being a really deep dive into everything that goes on with that. And not only was it that, I mean, this was like, I feel like the education that I needed about the immune system that I just had been wanting to have for so long. So not only was that fabulous and fantastic, but on top of that, it tackled something about the immune system that I personally am really interested in, which is how different people individually have different manifestations of the immune system. So Heather actually has four immunotypes that she talks about. So this book, I really recommend it to everybody. There's no way we're going to even remotely touch on everything in it. So just go buy it now, but we will get into some of the nitty gritty on today's conversation. So Heather, thank you so much for being here. It's really great to be here, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. To start things off, 
So you are an allergist and an immunologist and an integrative and functional medicine physician. Uh, You received your MD from Tulane Medical School in New Orleans and had a residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in allergy and immunology at Montefiore. I'm going to say it again. Montefiore. Montefiore. Yeah. Montefiore. I knew I was going to (laughs) forget. Slash Albert Einstein Medical Center in New York City. You have a certification through the Institute for Functional Medicine this is super cool that you're part of the Mind Body Green Collective. I didn't realize that they had a curated group of 50 experts. That's super cool. That sounds like a very elite. I don't know if they still sort of talk about it, but it was a few years ago they sort of put it together. So yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, obviously, I'm very familiar with Mind Body Green, and that is quite an honor. Did they reach out to you, like, or did you get nominated? How did that work? Yeah, I'm not sure. It was about three years ago now that I think someone nominated me, and I don't even know who it was. And they reached out and I was on their podcast. I've been on their podcast twice, actually. Jason is just amazing. Yeah. And then we wrote a bunch of articles and things. And, you know, their company has evolved over the past, you know, four years. So things might have changed. But yeah, they're great people. That is super amazing. I remember when I um, released my book, that was one of the first like press related articles I got for it. I was so excited. I was like, mind, body, green. (laughs) That's amazing. And you also are the owner of the Monet Center. And that's in Virginia, where you are now? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I've been through a little bit of a change. I was in Philadelphia for many years and I actually had a brick and mortar office there. And then during COVID, you know, when things sort of shut down, I went online for a while, sort of doing telemed mostly. And then for personal reasons, I moved to Virginia and continued just working remote, you know, sort of, you know, telemedicine. And then, so I just opened up a very small office here. So I'm still mostly telemedicine, but, you know, hopefully we'll get more to like a 50-50. So yeah, new, it's sort of like a whole new thing for me. It's really neat. A whole new thing and having telemedicine or having the new the office? Well, just open, like opening up a new office. It's like, you know, starting over again, like I did in like 2013, 2014. So. Wow. Well, congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah. And then obviously the book, The Immunotype Breakthrough, your personalized plan to balance your immune system, optimize health, and build lifelong resilience. So, so much going on there. But for the listeners, your personal story, I'm super curious. When did you become interested in the immune system? Like, did you want to be a doctor growing up? When did the immune system focus come into play? Not, literally not until I was... Well, it's really funny. I do tell the story in the book that I didn't want to be a doctor when I was younger. I don't think. I think I wanted to be a veterinarian, vet because I loved animals. But then I realized that if you love animals, it's really hard to be a vet. But you know, I always loved biology. I was a, I was just sort of like a science geek. And so when I went to college, I studied biology, and I sort of thought, oh, I'll be in, you know, go into like oceanography, and you know, you go through all those permutations of what you want to be when you grow up. So post college, I just needed a job, and I lived outside of New York City, so. I got a job at Rockefeller University, which if people don't know, it's it's one of the most amazing, famous research institutions in the whole world. It's, I don't know how many Nobel Prize laureates have worked there and still work there, but, you know, I was lucky to fall into this lab. It's just a lab tech. It turned out that was run by this really well-known, basically, he's what's called a neuroendocrinologist. So he is, he is the individual, Dr. Bruce McEwen, who actually invented the idea of uh, allostatic stress load, basically like sort of the amount that stress, you know, what stress does to the body and sort of like how we balance that and how much we're able to take, et cetera. And so 
His studies were really about cortisol, the effect of cortisol on the immune system. So that was the team that I was on. This was back in the early 90s. And so I really didn't have a clue about immunology at all. And so learned a lot there and actually learned quite a bit about, you know, the response of stress on the body. But even after that, when I went to medical school, you know, you sort of like have to learn anatomy and you're sort of in everything else. And so it wasn't until I was probably a resident and I did internal medicine, so which is, you know, sort of general medicine. And, and But I knew I wanted to do some sort of fellowship. And so I rotated around and did a couple of months doing different things. And I ended up doing an allergy immunology month and um, just really loved it. And so that's sort of what I decided to do. And so it was a little bit of a roundabout way, you know, and then of course, from there, it gets more fascinating when you, when you, when you learn about functional medicine and you start realizing that, wow, your immune system is really affected by so many things in our, in our habits and our life, you know. The vet aspect. Yeah. I learned recently, I think they have the highest suicide rate of any profession. Yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't watch a commercial without absolutely crying. I don't think I would be able to handle it, you know. Not that humans, you know, it's it's hard to see humans suffer and die, of course, but I don't know, small animals, you know, large animals, it's just heart-wrenching. Yeah. Secondly, when I read that in the book about studying with him and the allostatic load, I was like, wow, it's like a celebrity because <laughs> that's like such a concept. I did a, I just did a summit with uh, Jeffrey Bland, who who's amazing. And he knew him, you know, Bruce actually passed a few years ago, but Younger people don't really know him, right? But he was a giant in his fields. I mean, just, you know, one of those people who discovered something that went on to just make a huge impact on research. Yeah, no, that's incredible. So another question that relates to both your personal story and just the history of the immune system in general, you talk in the book about the history of our understanding of infectious disease and how it's evolved and how we view the immune system. And I mean, it's really shocking in a way to think about how we had just no idea for so long about so many things. So I'm curious, the evolution of the immune system, just in general, in history, what have been the biggest paradigm shifts or insights that have happened? And also just in your time that you've been practicing, like has the view changed a lot since when you started to where you are now? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we've like 10x or 100x since probably like, you know, the mid, I don't know, say like mid 1900s, right? But, you know, I mean, you can go back if you really dig all the way back, they had a, an understanding or not like a real understanding, but you could even go back to the 1500s and they didn't know what they were doing, but they knew that if they gave, you know, a little bits of infections or a little bit of, of something to someone with, say, smallpox, that they might not get sick, but they didn't really understand it. So I would say that the real understanding and there, you know, there's crossover between infectious disease and immunology and there are really two sciences, but I would say probably a lot of people point to Edward Jenner. So Edward Jenner was, you know, this was back in the gosh, late 1700s. You know, he, he's the one who took cowpox, right? He took, he took stuff from like cowpox pustules and gave it to people, you know, so they didn't get smallpox because smallpox was for hundreds of years a scourge on on the earth right so that was you know and he discovered a bunch of other things too i mean most people would, some people would say like oh that would be like the first vaccine but and then of course louis pasteur in the late 1800s actually did create vaccines for cholera and rabies and a couple other things he discovered so many different things 
And then I think I mentioned the book, a Russian, a lot of people say he's sort of like the beginning immunologist and his name is Ellie Mechnikoff. And he discovered, he, he realized that there were cells that could engulf other cells. So phagocytes. So there's a, a bunch of cells that we call phagocytes, which engulf bacteria and damaged cells and cancer cells, et cetera. And so that sort of, he was a big, he learned a lot about, I mean, he, he taught us a lot about the innate immune system. And then it sort of goes on and on through, through the years. Paul Ehrlich is another one. And then the vaccines really took off in the early 20th century. And we didn't have a vaccine program because we didn't really understand. We didn't have technology or anything like that. We didn't really have a vaccine program to the 1950s with polio. It's really the big one. But I would say like since then, you know, with technology, because, you know, there's so much of the stuff you can't see. I mean, you can't really discover cytokines and, and things like that. You can't really see them. I mean, you can see cells with microscopes, but there's so much that I would say really took off after like the 1960s, 1970s because of the technology that we have. So it's fairly new, you know? Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. Do you know, like with the people in the early experiments, like with the cowpox and stuff, I don't know if you know this, but do you know if they did that with the understanding of what they were doing? Like, did they realize that they were giving the body exposure to a small amount of it, or did they think it was killing the infection? I don't think they thought it was killing the infection. I really do think that it was sort of like that idea of almost like a homeopathic type of idea. Like, we're going to give you a little bit and your body's going to somehow learn from this. But no, I don't think they understood the science really at all. I mean, there were primitive microscopes back there and back then, of course, but you know, so much was just, I mean, people really thought outside of the box. They were very creative and, you know, I've never read the works of Edward Jenner. I would love to know what was going on in his head, but they didn't, they didn't have the uh, information we have now in terms of, you know, looking inside of cells. It's so fascinating. I've actually had this question for a long time. So we hear about all of these awful infectious diseases and I guess COVID aside, but historical, you know, things that we're immunized or we have vaccines for today. Did some of these just die out naturally or are we literally just immunized to everything that there could be? And also, is it like when we, maybe this will be a better question after we've talked more about the immune system, but when we do have like immunity to something, for example, is it that we've learned how to fight it or have we just like changed the locks on the doors so things can't get in in the first place? Like, I'm just really curious about how we're protected against all of these different diseases. Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, if you think back, say you go back 200 years, right? Or so 200, 300 years. One thing is, you have to understand that we didn't have sanitation the way that we have now. <laughs> so like, that's a huge barrier for getting infectious disease, right? So because a lot of the things that we get are, yes, respiratory, but a lot are what are called fecal oral trans transmission, which sounds really gross, but it's true. So basically that we transmit, you know, we transmit bacteria and viruses through, you know, poop basically, which gets in our hands. And then, and this is how even now, like young parents will tell you like, oh, you get adenovirus or you get, I'm not sorry, not adenovirus, ro rotavirus, or if you go on like a cruise ship and you get some of those viruses, those are fecal oral, polio is fecal oral. There's many, many, many infections that are that, right? And so back in the day, you know, we didn't have sanitized water. They were open sewage systems. We, I mean, they didn't. So that's like a huge barrier right there that once we got modern sanitation, oh, so we weren't eating like poop all the time, which is big, right? And also the thing is people were like, oh, you need to wash your hands. 
back before I can't ever remember exactly, but say like, you know, it wasn't until like, you know, probably like the early 1800s or so that surgeons actually, you know, wore gloves and washed their hands and things like that. And that's why so many women died in childbirth and, you know, soldiers died on the field. I mean, you know, we just didn't even know like the basics of antiseptic stuff. So, so that's one big thing. The other thing is, is if you did get an infection, we had no way to really treat people. Obviously we didn't have antibiotics. We didn't have supportive care. Like if someone got pneumonia and needed to be on like a respirator, you know, so there's so many things that if you did get sick, you often would have a very bad outcome. So there's that. And then in terms of, you know, yes, there are some, you know, viruses die out all the time. You know, they come in and out of the world. We see that all the time, even just now, like, you know, we hear of like, oh, there's an Ebola breakout. Like Ebola's probably been around for, you know, thousands of years, but it stays around in these animal vectors that I should say vector, but animal populations, then it pops out and comes into the human population, you know, for a couple of months and then it goes back in and then it goes away. So, so, you know, there's, and viruses are always mutating and changing. I mean, bacteria are pretty stable, right? They don't change too much generally. And, you know, let's just say we've eradicated certain things, you know, like smallpox, but we still see there's outbreaks of all sorts of things. Like, you know, we just had a, you know, issue with polio, right? On Long Island and, you'll still see obviously measles outbreaks and, and things like that. So they're here. So I think part of it is modern medical care, vaccines, sanitation, and maybe stronger immune systems too, because we have better nutrition. One of my big things in life is gratitude. And I I should probably be more grateful, like thinking about how wonderful it is to live now and not then. Cause I think we don't appreciate like how disgusting like like life could have been great stories about like how london you know london like stunk i moved here from philadelphia and outside of philadelphia there are these you know homes that are up it's really not far i mean probably takes you know 30 minutes to walk or or you know 45 minutes to walk but they built houses up in the park because of like yellow fever and dysentery like you know the sewage and the rats and all this kind of stuff because, you know, cities were stinky and gross. Growing up, I used to read craft books. I don't know if you've heard of them. They had these like science books for kids and they were really like funny, but they were like really deep. I have this memory of this one page where it was like, like how did people walk around in the 1800s? And it was like very carefully. And then it had a person like not stepping in basically the feces. And it was like saying that they were just like on the streets. I was like, okay. But in any case, so the actual immune system itself. Your book is so comprehensive because I think the immune system is so vague to people. Like it's ironic because it's so well known. Like everybody knows about the immune system and they want to support the immune system and they're all about the immune system. But I don't know if we actually, most people don't really know what it actually is. So what is it and where is it? Yeah, it's everywhere. That's the, th- I think that's why it's confusing because you can't really put your finger on it. It doesn't exist in one place. And it's really a, it's sort of like a universe or a system. Um, we call it a system, obviously, but it's made up of, you know, sort of distinct parts, but they're always moving around. So there's, you know, many different cells. And I don't even talk about all the cells that are, you know, part of the immune system. You sort of break it down into like the basics because, you know, it's not necessary for people to know all of that unless you want to go back and study, you know, (laughs) immunology. So there's lots of different players, lots of different cells. They communicate with chemical messengers, which are proteins that are created in these cells and that they, they, they basically tell other cells what to do. There are areas where they 
sort of hang out. For example, we have lymph nodes. Most people understand that. We have other immune organs like the spleen, the thymus, a bunch, a, a collection of uh, like our tonsils actually are lymph nodes. We have uh, really a whole chain of lymph nodes throughout the whole body, but in a very large congregation outside of our intestinal tract where, where it's such a large collection of these lymphatic or lymph tissue that you know, people often say it's sort of like the center of the, of our immune system. And, and, you know, it basically these cells are either hanging out there or they're cruising the, you know, lymphatic system, or they're going through the bloodstream, or sometimes they're just hanging out in tissue. So it's really everywhere. And that's why people are like, I don't know where it is, because you can't really point to it. Is there a central knowledge to the immune system? So how does it know what to identify as an issue to deal with? You know, I don't know if there's a central knowledge, but there is, depending on, let's just say, what the insult is, right? What, what's the what's the injury? So for, let's just say there's a difference between if you breathe in a microbe, right? Say something like a streptococcus, right? So streptococcus is a bacteria and say you breathe that in or touch it and you swallow it breathe it in, it's going to be sampled, right? So you're going to have immune cells that are there, mostly what are called macrophagocytes or macrophages and things like that. And they might sample the bacteria because we have our immune system, and this is where that concept of tolerance comes in. We identify outside invaders by patterns on their surface. So You'll often hear of this like microbial patterns on the surface of different things, whether it's viruses or bacteria, fungi, et cetera. And so these cells, which are hanging out there, will say, okay, I, know, I don't know exactly what this is, but I know it's probably not something good. So, because it's not my own tissue and it's also, they've learned over time that this is something that's probably dangerous. So they sample it. Sometimes they might just be able to engulf it and destroy it. Sometimes it has to go up the chain of command and there might be cytokines released. So you might start to have fever. In the case of injury, you have signals that get sent out from injured tissue that recruit cells to the area. They also secrete cytokines that might do things like increase circulation to the area. So you get blood to the area and fluid and, and things like that. So it becomes, it's this really incredibly intricate, well-oiled machine <laughs> that, you know, the whole idea is that we should be able to get rid of things quietly and quickly and sometimes without even our knowledge because we're constantly being exposed to things that might be potentially harmful to us, like on a daily basis. And you would never know because your immune system does it so that you don't feel it. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples. 
meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. You talk about in the book about how this is, you know, ongoing all the time. And like you just said, a lot of times it, I guess, quote, should or could be going just under the radar. Is it always, even on a minute level, inflammatory when something gets engulfed? Like, can it deal with something and not even have an intense inflammatory response? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of things that we can do ourselves can break down or denature microbes. So, for example, stomach acid is a perfect example of that, right? So, God knows we eat all sorts of crazy stuff all the time. You know, we think we don't live in a... the th- Food is not... It's not sterile, right? <laughs> There's always something you're eating, right? So, you're always going to eat some bacteria or whatever saliva actually has enzymes in it. Stomach acid obviously is, is like battery acid. So that can actually kill microbes. Our skin itself is a great barrier against things entering mucus, just in general, nasal sinus mucus, whatever. I mean, think about what we breathe in on a daily basis. If we didn't have, if we didn't have this, these barriers and these enzymes and chemicals that just denature things, then we would be constantly sick, right? And so that's number one. So we always consider barrier barriers as part of our innate immune system. So very nonspecific. We don't really think about it too much. And then there are those innate immune cells, which, you know, again, they can, they can sort of swallow things, destroy them. And they're not going to set off like a huge inflammatory response unless they start to really get overwhelmed and then things change. How evolved do you have to be as a species to have an innate and an adaptive immune system? Like, do some species just have an innate immune system? So I believe that there are. I don't know completely. Mammals, I'm pretty sure, all have both. But, you know, like reptiles, I couldn't tell you for sure. But yeah, all humans do have an adaptive immune response. So much, much, much more complex. What's the primary like purpose difference between the innate and the adaptive? I mean, they're both extremely important. I guess you can think of the innate immune system as like the our, sort of our first line of defense, although technically there are some antibodies that are pretty quick acting as well. But the innate immune system, most people would say it's nonspecific. And what I mean by nonspecific is that it doesn't it doesn't have, they don't have receptors for like a specific thing. So for example, we talk about the innate, when, when we talk about the adaptive immune system, like we actually have T 
T cells and B cells that can identify very specifically certain bacteria and viruses and know exactly what to do, right? So again, the innate immune cells are more, they're, <laughs> they're more like the bouncers. They can identify that there are things that have, again, microbial patterns, or we call pathogen associated molecular patterns or PAMPs that they know, okay, this is not good. So we're going to engulf it. We're going to inject it. We're going to, you know, break it down, or we're going to take a piece of it and we're going to take it back to some of our innate, our adaptive immune cells and, and ask them like, Hey, what do we need to do with this? Right. Do we need to go ahead and, and, and go up the chain of command and do something more specific with it? So those are sort of like the two. And there's, I mean, there's sort of, there's definitely crossover between the two, but there are cells that play very important roles on both sides. So you mentioned the PAMPs. Are things more likely that situation where they have something on them that identifies them as bad? Or is it more likely that they lack a tag that says that they're the body? Or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both because, yeah, I mean, we we don't and should not, our innate immune system does not attack our own cells. Our adaptive does sometimes. So yeah, so basically it's those molecular patterns that they recognize and attack. They can also recognize cancer cells, right? So that's an important thing because when when our own human cancer cells, so that is one exception, undergoes transformation so that it's it looks weird, right? <laughs> we do attack those and that's natural killer cells are really important sort of player that does that. And they're also, they sort of a go between, but they are a very important part of our innate immune system. So that's really interesting. So autoimmunity issues mostly or only occur with adaptive, not innate. Yes. So when we think of most autoimmune activity, it's usually T cell mediated which means like you can actually have T cells that attack tissue or you can have antibodies created by B cells that are directed against your own tissue. So that's usually when we see destruction of tissue, that's, that's what's going on. Yeah. With the adaptive immune response and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but it sounds like the two like big players would be the B cells and the T cells. Correct. Those are, yeah, those are lymphocytes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess before I ask my question, so what is the primary purpose of the B cells and then the primary purpose of the T cells? Well, they actually work together. So T cells, I mean, they look different, right? They, they, they have a different structure. They have different kinds of receptors and everything like that. There's many different kinds of T cells. So we have what are called cytotoxic or killer T cells. They can actually kill on their own. We also have what are called helper T cells. And I actually only talk about a few of these in the book because there's more. I think there's eight different kinds, but it's really not necessary to understand all of those. But helper T cells are really, really important, not only to secrete cytokines and everything, but they also activate, they interact with B cells in order to tell them to make antibodies. So there has to be that T cell, B cell interaction so, so they work together. So I guess you can think of, and there's also something called regulatory T cells, which are also important, but 
T cells can, you know, specifically go after viruses. They can, uh, and helper T cells secrete different forms of cytokines, which will activate other cells. So, for example, they can, you know, activate cells that I don't really talk about in the book, but things like mast cells, eosinophils, which are involved in allergy per se. So they can do a lot of different things. And then B cells, their main job is to create antibodies or what we call immunoglobulins. And that that type of cell or a plasma cell can go on to create like tons and tons and tons of antibodies. We also have what are called memory B cells and those will stay around for a long time. And that gives us, we have memory T cells too, but those give us a lot of our ability to have a long lasting immunity towards different microbes. Some questions about the B cells. I was like researching them more and trying just to understand them more and was learning about how they have basically all of these like thousands of proteins on them. And then they're just like going around and bump into viruses and they class, they do what's called class switching. They, they can rearrange their genetic, their genes. Yeah. This is like very confusing to me. Is it just a numbers game? Like, do they just float around and then just hope that their combination connects with the virus? Like it seemed very random. You know, it is sort of random, but there's so many of them. And then what happens is when they're, when one does, you know, when they do have a receptor that identifies this bacteria, they do what's called uh, clonal expansion. So they can basically clone themselves. And so all of a sudden you have like thousands and thousands and thousands of these B cells. And then, you know, and then those B cells can make tons of antibodies. So, you know, when you look at, you know, when people say, oh, I went into the doctor or whatever, and I had an increase in my, in my white blood count. Sometimes it's neutrophils, which are sort of the innate immune, big, you know, very important players there. But they'll say, oh, my lymphocytes were high. So that's usually usually your B cells responding to infection. So in theory, could there be the possibility of a virus or a pathogen that has some sort of pattern that is not created by our body or is everything going to be covered? It's always going to be covered. It may, it may take them a little bit, right? So, so this is, this is the, one of the issues with viruses is that they, they change their, they mutate, they change their DNA, but they also have, as we've learned from COVID and many other viruses, but COVID's a big one, you know, they can evade the immune system in different ways. So they can hide their, you know, their molecular patterns and stuff. So they have ways of evading our immune system. But no, I don't think that, I don't think there's ever been seen, I mean, for someone who has an intact immune system that over time we wouldn't, you know, be able to figure it out. This is so fascinating. Who knew all of this is going on all the time? And so antibodies themselves, I think I had, I don't think I really understood what antibodies were. Because when I hear antibodies, and I wonder if other people think this as well, it sounds like, attacking. But is it more just a tag? What does it actually do? They don't actually really kill things. They they do something called opsonization is the technical term. So they sort of coat, they, they cluster and coat a microbe and tag it for destruction. And that can be from usually killer t- cytotoxic T cells, although other cells can do it too. 
mast cells can do it, eosinophils, lots of different other cells. But yeah, they, they are tags. And, and, you know, there's different classes of antibodies and they look different. There's not a ton of them. I think there's only f- uh, there's four, five, or technically there's five. I don't think I talk about one of them because it's usually mostly seen in infancy and pregnancy. But they look different. They do different things. They are increased by different cytokines. They play different roles. But the ones when we usually talk about antibodies, we're usually talking about a class called IgG, immunoglobulin G. That's the that's the one that when we're talking about, oh, so-and-so has antibodies too, it's usually IgG because that's the one that has the long, you know, sort of a long half-life and floats around and that's protective. So is it true that when you do a blood test for the different antibodies that IgM means you have it actively and IgG means you had it? No, that's, that's correct. So IgM is, the, is what we create first. So this is very, you'll see this typically when they talk about something like hepatitis, right? When someone first gets hepatitis, they'll have, or even something like Epstein-Barr virus, so different viruses. You'll see initially an increase in IgM antibodies to whatever part of the virus. And then that will wane because, like I said, we have this class switching and all of a sudden the B cells will make IgG class antibodies against the same microbe. Are there endogenous and exogenous antibodies? Like people will talk about monoclonal antibodies with COVID. Is that just giving yourself exogenous antibodies? Yeah. So usually when people are talking about monoclonal antibodies, they're, they're usually synthetically made. So for example, many of the drugs that some of the drugs we get for cancer and autoimmune disease and things like that, those are monoclonal antibodies, like forms. But when we're talking about like our own antibodies, they're all, they're all endogenous. They're all things that, you know, we make, you know, because unless you have an immune deficiency, which is rare, but some people do, we make all these antibodies, you know, all the time. I just am taking moments just thinking about all of this going on. So I was actually reading in another book, it was talking about circadian rhythms in the body. And it was saying that the immune system basically has four jobs of surveillance, repair, attack and cleanup. And it was saying that these are not task driven. Like it was saying that you would think it would be like you get an invader and that, you know, it's like surveilling and then there's the invader and attacks and then it repairs and cleans up. But it was saying that it's completely circadian rhythm driven so that all that's not happening at once and it happens at different times. And it was saying that sepsis is actually when all of that happens at the same time. When we get exposed to a pathogen or something, what is the role of circadian or peripheral rhythms in that? Like you talk about sleep, how stuff happens when we sleep. So I wouldn't say that it doesn't happen other times. I would say that routinely, you know, it's sort of like, you know, if you think about it, like if you only cleaned your house or took your garbage out once a month, you'd be in a lot of trouble, right? (laughs) So you got to do it every day. However, you're still going to be able to attack and, you know, do that kind of stuff, repair, even at a time of the day that wouldn't be say like normal, right? So the normal routine maintenance work, I would say of our immune system is, is definitely driven pretty significantly by circadian rhythm, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening at other times when we need it. That's why it is so important to have like healthy sleep habits and things like that, because 
Our immune system actually is, and I write about this, is that it's pretty active while we sleep. And, you know, I actually learned quite a bit when I was doing research in this area, because this is an area, obviously, I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't really think about the fact that, you know, sleep is a really, really mysterious, like for, for you know, the longest time we had no idea why humans actually slept. <laughs> why? Why do we sleep half of our lives? And why is it that if you try to sleep deprived people, you can actually kill them? And part of it is that if you think about it, if we had to do all this work of, you know, not only like killing microbes and making antibodies and cleaning up our brain and repairing tissue and stuff like that. We had to do that while we were like walking around, moving our muscles, talking, breathe, you know, thinking, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's no way it could happen. And so it's really a downtime for our, the rest of our body where our immune system can actually be super active while we're not aware of it. The sleep chapter was fascinating. You just talking about how when we are sleeping, that's really when immune activity really ramps up. So for people who are, and because we haven't even gotten into the immunotypes yet, but for people who tend to err on a side of a more inflammatory response in their body, is it possible that when they sleep, they actually might get more inflamed? I don't think they get more inflamed. I think that, you know, because I think part of it is that while we're, you know, we have that inflammatory response early in the evening, that's, you know, when I talk about like, during that non-REM deep sleep and melatonin is very active and we have a lot of cytokine activity, but the rest of the evening when, when cortisol starts to kick up in the early morning hours, we actually resolve inflammation. So we want to be able to do the cleanup, right. And then go back to like a nice homeostasis. So when we are sleep deprived, whether it's front end, back end, we can have ongoing inflammation because we haven't done a lot of cleanup. So we have like things that linger. So, I mean, everyone's had the experience when they're starting to get like a tickle or something like that, but they're like, oh, I got to stay up and write a paper or I've got to do this thing. I've still got to work or I, they try to like go exercise, you know, get to the gym and then they just get sicker and sicker and sicker (laughs) because they're skimping on their sleep instead of being like, you know what? I feel this coming on. I need to go to bed and like get, you know, 10 hours of sleep. Because you know how that feels, you're going to feel better. You're going to actually start to to heal because you're giving you're giving the space for your immune system to do its work. It's fascinating. You mentioned. I feel like they should integrate this into public policy. The role of like when people get vaccines and the antibody response that they mount based on their levels of sleep they got. They do not say that, and I'm like, I don't understand why that's not public policy. That it's not some, or at least not even that's public policy, but it something that should be, should really be something that when someone comes in for a vaccine, they say, okay, well, tonight you need to make sure that you don't go out and party, that you need to go home and sleep because your response to this vaccine really hedges a lot on giving your immune system time to actually do the work because it's the immune system that does the work, right? I mean, the vaccine's there, but your, your immune system is what gives you that you know, the lasting protection. In the studies, is it the sleep directly following the vaccine or directly prior? You know what? I think it's actually both, but most importantly is right after, is that evening because, you know, you've gotten the, you have then gotten the 
whatever it is, it's a, if it's a killed vaccine or a live vaccine or mRNA or whatever, it's it's to help your body then do the work. So really, I would say after. That is just really fascinating. That should definitely be more well known. Do things go awry just in the the immune system? Like you're mentioning, like talking about T cells, I think a phrase that people have heard a lot, especially in the holistic health world is TH1 versus TH2 dominant and issues with that. And you have a whole chapter on TH cell polarization. What's happening with that? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it gets a little complex, but, and like I said, I really only talk about three different kinds of these helper cells. So these are all, you know, I talked about uh, cytotoxic or killer T cells, and these are what are called helper T cells. And they're helper T cells because they literally, they help B cells make antibodies, but they also, there are these, you know, subtypes that actually secrete different cytokines. So they actually go on to activate other immune cells. So the idea is that we, our immune system, when T cells are born, they're born, they're called T cells because they're born in the thymus cell, the thymus gland. They go through this whole process when they're sort of born, they're what we call naive. And naive T cells don't really, you know, they don't know what their job is yet. (laughs) So... What happens is they can be polarized into these different subtypes based on their, you know, what kind of pathogen they come in contact with, and then also other cytokines. So Th1 cells, basically, we think of those as the ones that are very responsive to bacteria, viruses, fungi, whatever. They produce a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines that can recruit other cells. So this is, I would say, when you're trying to really fight off an infection. Not to say that TH2 cells can't do that either, but that's sort of the overall, right? And then we have TH2 cells, T helper 2 cells, and these are activated also by those things, but lesser to a lesser extent, they are definitely activated by parasites, certain bacteria that actually are inside inside of cavities. So think of like a sinus or bladder or actually on the skin. And they make different cytokines and they recruit different cells. So they stimulate B cells a lot to create something called IgE. IgE is involved with allergies. So people can understand if they have a lot of allergies, they probably have a little bit of what we call a TH2 dominance. And then I talk about TH17, which is a little bit different. These are relatively new on the scene. These are highly inflammatory. They are important for killing infection. But when they get dysregulated and when we get too many of them, they can definitely cause tissue damage. And so they're sort of thought to be a big player in autoimmune activity. So the whole idea of polarization is that Let's say we have, in the case of TH17 cells, for example, those can sometimes be triggered by yeast and fungal infections or things like that. So, you know, and we know that certain, certain bacteria, say in the gut, can be instigators for autoimmune disease. And so if our body's constantly trying to, say, remove a specific bacteria from the gut or, or a fungal infection, these TH17 cells can start to get really sort of overproduced And, you know, it's almost like they get in this pattern of like, they're turned on all the time. So we're creating all these cytokines and we get stuck or polarized in this one pattern. So 
that's the idea of T-cell polarization. It's not like permanent, right? So we can always get out of this and it doesn't mean that you're not making other T-cells, but these polarization patterns do tend to line up with certain disease processes or like certain what we call disease phenotypes. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. So is that largely environmental driven, like exposure to different things or can people be genetically inclined? Oh, definitely there's genetics. And, you know, it's so confusing because the genetics behind, let's just say allergic disease, you cannot find one gene. There's probably thousands, right? Because it does tend to go through families. So you can look at a family and say, oh, this family has lots of what we call A to P or atopic disease. And same with autoimmunity. We see autoimmune patterns in families for sure. So there is a component to that, environmental factors. And so gut issues, which you know are obviously very important, play a huge role in both development of allergic disease, but also development of autoimmune disease. Do you know, like with allergies, why certain things have persisted? And like, you think the body would have evolved by now to learn that peanuts are like not an issue? Yeah, it seems to be very individual. So when I was doing training as an allergist, and even in just my early years, this is not that long ago, so early, early to mid 2000s, we were taught, and this was the, the sort of overwhelming idea was that you did not want to introduce children or infants to certain proteins early on. So for example, we would tell moms like, don't eat peanuts, don't give your children peanuts or shrimp or anything like when they're babies. And what we now know is that that's actually wrong. (laughs) It's better to actually introduce your children. And, you know, it always, I never really understood it because, you know, I used to think back then like, oh, well, if you go to Africa, now granted, Africa has a totally, you know, totally different environments, right? So there's many things that are different about the environment stimulating the immune system. But, you know, peanuts in many African countries are a real staple, right? As are some other things. And uh, I feel like, why is it that we're having such a problem? (laughs) So actually now the tide has turned and they actually recommend that children are given these proteins early on to actually make them more tolerant of it. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside. 
and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. So could they make like a, like a, I don't know, like an allergy drink that you give your kid when they're young and it just exposes them to everything? So there's a book that I, that I just received that I, I'm going to do a little review on. It's called The Baby in the Biome. Oh, I heard about, I've heard about that. Yeah. So this woman wrote it based on her experience with this whole thing. And she actually created a line of, I believe it's powders that you can mix into beverages and food to sort of re to introduce these proteins and antigens, what we call them, early on to almost like desensitize or I wouldn't say desensitize because they're not allergic to them yet, but to promote this tolerance of the foods. So yeah, and you know, they have been working on and they still they do oral desensitization on children, it's it can be very risky. But they ha they do have some of that that's done in, in usually in a clinic or hospital-based setting to try to desensitize children to, to things that are, they're already allergic to. Are we ever immediately born already with an IgE or is there like a timeline to when that's all developing? 
Yeah. I mean, it is really, really early. You know, you know, we get a, our immune system is actually pretty underdeveloped when we're first born and we get a lot of antibodies from our mother, both through the placenta, but also through breast milk. And then of course it starts to evolve. But I would say that, you know, there are some cases of children who genetically are born with like really, really high levels of IgE. There's actually a, a genetic disorder, but I would say that's pretty rare. So yeah, I think there's always, there's always an opportunity to intervene. I think the, like the PR team for that woman reached out to us. So I'm going to gonna like look for that email because that's so fascinating. You talk about colostrum in the book and that's something I've experimented with in the past. Is that a case of taking in something that has antibodies in it? Yeah. So colostrum can be really helpful also for sort of reconstituting. It has a lot of IgA in it, which is really beneficial for gut health. And that's primarily why I use it because it can be very protective, you know, sort of re or protecting that gut immune barrier because IgA is it's again it's just another class of immunoglobulin so like IgE and, and IgG but IgA is 99% tissue bound so it doesn't really float around the body and it hangs out and is secreted by lymphocytes on the surface of of uh, of our mucosal layer. So basically our respiratory tract and our digestive tract. And so IgA is a really, again, even though it's technically an adaptive immune response, it's, I always think of it as being an important part of sort of innate immunity too, because it's on that surface, right? You mentioned earlier T-cells in the thymus. People can get their thymus removed, right? So your thymus, what's interesting about your thymus is most of the time people don't have their thymus removed, but it does shrink as we get older. <laughs> so if you looked at a baby or you did an x-ray, you would see this very sort of like a larger shadow in the chest area. And that's the thymus because it's, it's quite large when we're younger. And then as we get older, it sort of involutes and becomes smaller now there are some, there's one specific disease called myasthenia gravis, which is, it's an autoimmune disease and they can have a, what's called a thymoma. You can get cancers of the thymus and things like that, but you wouldn't otherwise have it removed unless it was cancerous. But if you did have it removed, where do the T cells get educated then? So different other secondary lymph organs. So things like the spleen, lymph nodes, and things like that, bone marrow. Yeah. But you wouldn't want to be born without a thymus. <laughs> so interesting. The immunotypes. So one of the coolest things about your book is, did you come up with these four immunotypes? I did. Yes. Very cool. I'm actually really curious when you were thinking about this, how did you identify these four? And did you think maybe there were more or less? Like, What was that process like? The biggest thing I struggled with was what I was going to call them <laughs> because, you know, it was like more of a semantics thing, but I, I did have a sense of what more of like the phenotype or the, the patient behind it or the symptoms or how people present and that kind of thing. So, and I knew based on some of the T cell polarization that it was going to, that that was connected to, although it's not obviously a hundred percent, but it does play a role. 
So it was really because people were sort of asking me about whether their immune system was strong or weak or needed to be boosted or this and that. And so this idea of like, you know, two dimensional immune system just didn't resonate at all, which because it doesn't, it's not real. And so I was like, well, what, this is what, these are the patterns that I see and that most people in terms of having symptoms or disease or whatever, this is how they fall. And one was that they are sort of inflamed, right? Now, the inflammation underlies three out of the four immunotypes in terms of being predominant, but it looks different and it it's because it's different cells and things. So it was mostly people like, you know, when people have heart disease and diabetes or arthritis, you know, non-autoimmune arthritis, like just sort of this constant, like low level inflammation, constant destruction of tissue and just causing issues throughout the body that most of us end up, you know, having diseases and dying from. So like the typical stuff, but to the point that, you know, you can walk around and like, you're not necessarily feeling it. Like, you're not like, oh, I broke my leg or something, or I'm in so much pain, but you're like, eh, I'm a little achy. I've got this or that, or my blood pressure's high. I'm like... And so I thought of fiery, but I was like, that's not quite it. So <laughs> smoldering was more of like, you know, it was sort of like under the radar, but like, if you really sort of looked at it, you know, these people are sort of constantly putting out fires, but, and they're getting symptoms and over time they're having tissue destruction and it's building upon itself and then it's causing more activation of our immune system and blah, blah, blah. That's the small drain. Now people with autoimmune disease can sort of start out that way too, but most of the time, because with the misguided immunotype, which are the people who have mostly autoimmune activity, again, autoimmune activity is, is usually triggered by some underlying inflammation. As we know, certain viruses can do this, certain bacteria, just all sorts of things. But they instead, they develop autoreactive inflammation. So they are specifically creating antibodies and creating T cells sometimes that target self tissue. So they have lost tolerance to their own tissue. It's not all of their tissue, it's just maybe one organ, depending on the myriad of autoimmune diseases that you can have. And then they also tend to have, they can have, they're tricky because they can have elevations in Th1 cytokines. They can have the Th17 cytokines, which is the most tissue destructive. And then there's a hyperactive. So again, inflammation, but different. These people have allergies. They are responding to something that's generally in the environment that is thought to be uh, relatively benign. So not pathogens, not something that's going to kill them. So like tree pollen, for example, perfect example, like tree pollen is completely innocuous. It's not going to kill you. It's not a pathogen, but people have very violent reactions to tree pollen. They have very violent reactions to cat dander and even food antigens, right? So these people have increases in IgE and eosinophils and mast cells. And so they get the typical symptoms of running nose, congestion, anaphylaxis, coughing, and so that's the hyperactive. And then the last is the weak. And weak is really people who are actually having difficulty mounting an appropriate immune response. And this could be both an innate problem, an adaptive issue, failure to create appropriate antibodies. And so there's a sort of low and slow and not really very powerful. And so these people tend to get more infections. They have a harder time fighting them. They become more recurrent. 
And so those were sort of the three that I see in terms of phenotypes. And then I just sort of did a deep dive into, okay, so what's going on underneath the surface, (laughs) you know? What I really love is in the book, you have, you know, a really intense overview of each type and how it manifests and a quiz for people to see where they fall. And then you actually have like labs for patterns that might pop up and then supplements that can help and dietary and lifestyle interventions. So it's just overwhelmingly helpful. I took the quiz and it was what I thought it was going to be, which is hyperactive. I always feel like I'm just responding to everything. Like my body's just like attacking everything. And actually that's something that I've wondered for so long because ever since I became familiar with the concept of inflammation, I think I sort of developed like an inflammation phobia. Like I, like I would, I can't even tell you, like I always have a therapist in my life and I I would like have therapist sessions where I'd be like talking about inflammation and my therapist would be like, Melanie, not everything is inflammation. And I'd be like, but it is. Um, but um, what's interesting is even like in my obsession with inflammation and feeling like I'm inflamed, my CRP is always like, you know, negligible, like zero. Can you have inflammation and have like a zero CRP? You can. So CRP, C-reactive protein, I would say it's more specific to certain cytokines. And so if you have elevations in certain cytokines, that tends to be what causes CRP to go up. So you can see it in someone who has autoimmune disease. You can also see it in people who have, I've actually seen really high levels in people who have hives, which, you know, think about that as allergic, but sometimes with hives, especially chronic urticaria, people can have an autoimmune activity or they can have inflammation of their very, very, very small blood vessels. And so it's not like, oh, if you don't have an elevated CRP, you're not inflamed. But I will tell you, if we see an elevated CRP, then we know that you are inflamed. And so so there's that. And I think that most of the time, it's because there's certain interleukins that can be elevated, like IL-6 is a big one for CRP. And so on a conventional lab test, and people will learn this when they read the book and you know see the different labs that are recommended, but things that are related to the immune system presentation, is it mostly just the WBC and like all the, the blood cells and the CRP? What else would it be? Yeah, we unfortunately don't have a lot of standard blood tests to screen people for for inflammation, right? So There are some, you know, more esoteric labs. So, you know, that are quite expensive, but, you know, they do exist. So for example, Cyrex Labs is is a laboratory that was founded by an immunologist that does a lot of food sensitivity testing, but also really a lot of antibody testing to many, many, many different things. But they have like lymphocyte panels and cytokine panels that, you know, to look for. But, you know, these are not things that you're, primary doctor is going to be doing and they're not going to know how to interpret it or even like know what to do with it. They're going to be like, okay, well, I see this is elevated, but I don't know what to tell you. So CRP is something that almost everybody can order. And if it's elevated, well, then it gives you some information. There's a couple other ones, something called a SED rate. You can just look at a regular WBC, a CBC, a complete blood count, and you can look at your total white blood cells and they do what's called a differential. So you can look at the 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 amount of neutrophils, the amount of lymphocytes, just to get a sense of like, okay, you know, what is, what's going on there? But yeah, we don't have a lot of information from standard labs. 
Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me Oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not
not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. And that presentation in the CBC, I've done episodes before on like blood tests and conventional ranges versus ideal ranges. Is it something with the CBC in particular, like the neutrophils and the monocytes and lymphocytes where you could have issues, but it, it would still fall within, you know, conventional ranges or if things are off, is it pretty much it manifests in that panel? You know, I would say that, no, it doesn't always manifest. I mean, it's nice to see but it doesn't always manifest, unfortunately. I mean, if you have something, like if you have an acute infection, right, you're going to go in, you're going to have high lymphocytes or high neutrophils or something, right? Of course, if you have cancer, I mean, that's how things like leukemia get diagnosed or lymphomas, but so you'll see like massive increase in because you've got cancer cells that are spewing out, you know, all of these cells. You know, for the most part, I mean, I order, you know, CBCs on everyone and they don't always look so bad. Mine always looks normal. Then there's been like one time where once or twice when it was off, because I don't remember being sick at the time. So that was always interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, it can happen. But again, it's like, I always tell people that if you're sick, it should, you know, you might see it and that's normal. That means that your immune system is doing its job. Yeah, that makes sense. So something really beneficial about knowing your immunotype with this, I mean, especially when COVID first started, well, I think at first people were like, boost the immune system. But then there's also this debate about, you know, the inflammatory response being the problem. So is this something where like the vague concept of boosting your immune system and, you know, taking these different supplements or doing whatever you can do, there probably should be two different words because boost kind of indicates upregulating activity, but there should also be a word of like maybe just fortifying your immune system. But would this be a thing where if you know your immunotype, you know, maybe you shouldn't be taking immune boosting supplements? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes it's harmful, but sometimes it's just not really going to help you that much. Right. So the things that we sort of know about, let's just say autoimmune disease, you know, some of these people are already a little bit inflamed and it's maybe that they may not, they may not get worse if they take something like elderberry. Right. But that's not really going to help them. Right. So we want to do things that sort of downregulate that autoimmune activity, which is going to be is going to be different. So, you know, it's not like okay, it's bad to take vitamin C or zinc, which are not really things that are boosting so much as just fueling or giving strength to your immune cells because we we need those things, we need those antioxidants. But I would say it, it comes down more to maybe doing things that increase cytokine activities that we maybe don't need to do for people who are already somewhat inflamed. Those people probably need more calming things or redirection. So like I like to say. That makes sense. And again, I just refer listeners to your book because it's all in there. I will say with the zinc, I made the mistake recently of I wanted to be preventative and I didn't want to get sick because I was traveling. So I was 
I was kind of high dosing zinc and then I was getting like immune shots and I like overdid it on the zinc and I got so sick. And now I'm like, oh, do not, do not take the zinc lightly. But one other big question for you, men versus women in the immune system. Do you find that when it comes to sex, that certain sex is more likely or certain types and what role does sex play in people's immune system? So, you know, it's a tricky one, but you know, I, I'm a big proponent of, of, you know, biological sex being very important when it comes to, to health and, and medicine in general. And it's because, you know, regardless of what you think about it, physiologically, you're born a certain way, regardless of how you identify. And if you're born with two X chromosomes or an X and a Y chromosome, you're going to develop differently. Your hormones are going to be different. Your immune system is different. Not radically so, but we do see that women have different responses. And what's interesting is women do tend to get more autoimmune activity. And it's not just in women who become pregnant. So it's not that. It has a lot to do with estrogen, but there's there's distinct sex differences that promote more autoimmune activity in women. And what's interesting is there are some autoimmune diseases that are more common in men. Like which ones? So the biggest one is uh, something called ankylosing spondylitis. Ankylosing spondylitis is not one that a lot of people heard of, but what happens is they get, I guess the biggest thing is that they get their spine become stiff and sort of, it actually confuse together. And I mean, there's some other things too, but that's a big one with men, but men can, you know, men can get other things. They can get Hashimoto's, they can get um, rheumatoid arthritis. But if you look at it, the percentage of women over men is very, very different. So that's a big one. The other thing is there are differences in obviously longevity that they think have to do with, with immunosenescence. You know, so we're looking, you know, research is looking at that in terms of longevity for women. There's definitely differences between like outcomes for different diseases, infectious disease women tend to actually do a little bit better sometimes. So, so yeah, it's, and, and, you know, this is like ongoing research. I probably wouldn't even do any, <laughs> give you any real information, but yeah, there's distinct sex differences that, you know, we're still sort of figuring out. And so for people, you know, cause they can fall in these different immunotypes and you talk about how they can have overlapping ones and they can change, but just in general for people who might feel stuck in whatever immune system situation they're in, like how fast can people make changes and what's the timeline and what's the hope for getting your immune system, you know, back to the way it should be? Well, again, it, it sort of depends, you know, what you're dealing with, right? So if you've had 15 years of, I don't know, let's just say something like MS or, you know, an autoimmune disease that's caused some irreversible tissue damage, right? So it's going to be hard to reverse that because the tissue damage, the scarring, things have, have changed. However, as we see from many, many people who have recovered from many different types of diseases, there's always the opportunity for improvement, for decrease in flare-ups, whether you're talking about an autoimmune disease or you're talking about, let's say, allergies. I've seen people change their allergic response by changing their diet quite significantly. Obviously, we see this all the time in people who are inflamed. And I've seen people who just have huge elevations in their C-reactive protein. And once they are sleeping and reducing their stress and changing their diet, improving their gut health, you know, it goes from 30 to 
to three or something like that. And all of a sudden their joints don't hurt anymore. Blood pressure goes down, you know, all those things. So, you, you know, it depends on, I guess, the severity of the immune problem, but, you know, you can make changes literally in a matter of weeks to months because we're constantly making new immune cells all the time, right? So we're constantly making new T cells and B cells, even though we have the memory ones and our innate immune system is always churning out new cells and attacking new things. And so, yeah, you can, you can make some big differences pretty quickly. I just can't thank you enough for your work in your book because it's just such an educational piece, but then it really gives people agency to actually, you know, look at what's going on with themselves and then make changes. And we didn't even talk about all of the, like the supplements and like the diet and the sleep and the exercise and everything, but it's, it's all in the book and it's very comprehensive. So listeners definitely check it out. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh gosh, so many things. I, you know, it's funny today, I was actually driving into a tunnel and there was an accident and uh, I was really happy that I wasn't in the accident, but I would say on a general, a general scale, I think I'm very, I think we complain a lot about, many people complain a lot about, you know, where we live in the United States and, you know, they complain about politicians and people doing horrible things, but I really like to think about all the goodness that's going around. And I'm very, I feel very fortunate that I live in a country that as a woman, I can do a lot more than I could do in other countries that I'm generally safe. We have generally, you know, adequate, you know, healthcare, and we have access to healthy food. There's so many people in this world that don't even have a fraction of, of what we get to enjoy every day. So I, I try to remind myself of that, that I'm very privileged, you know, to have that. And so I shouldn't complain about the small things in life, really. I love that answer so much. Yeah. Cause like you said, people will go on and on about all of the bad things happening and everything. And when people do that, I, I just, I don't know. I just like to reframe, like there's a lot of good in this world and we have a lot to be grateful for. I'm not living in a war-turn country. There's not a missile in my backyard. I'm not wearing a burqa. I have clean water to drink. I mean, people don't realize we're sort of very spoiled in what we have access to and, you know, so that's what I'm happy for. I agree so much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mode. This was absolutely amazing. I cannot thank you enough for your work. I really encourage listeners to get your book, ASAP, take your quiz, because you have a, the quiz online where people can take the quiz. Yes, the quiz is on my website too. So if they go to my website, which is just www.modecenter.com, you can also access it through my Instagram page under the, the links, my link tree. And then of course it's in the book, but you can take it on the website and get your answers too. And then, yeah, definitely get the book. It's out there. Perfect. Well, we will put links to all of that in the show notes. Are you going to write another book? That's the big question, right? You know, <laughs> um, it's funny because yeah, I, last year I was talking to my book agent and she said, okay, what's next? And I was like, oh, okay. But you know, I'm such a, I don't want to say like a perfectionist, like I do things perfectly because I do not, but I, I'm, I feel so responsible to make something that is unique and interesting and isn't just a repeat of what a lot of people are talking about. So yeah, there's a lot of things I'm interested in. So I'm trying to see what, you know, what comes to me that I'm like, oh, I could really, I can write something that's very, you know, interesting and useful that people when they buy it, they go, oh, I haven't heard, I have not heard this information before. So that's what I'm looking for. 
there's so much of the same content over and over. And so it's really exciting to, you know, get at both a nuanced and a new perspective on something. And, and I mean, your book was 100% that. So you accomplished that goal for sure. So I'm sure you will with your future books as well. But thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this so much. We'll put links to everything in the show notes. This was amazing. Hopefully we can connect again in the future. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.